and stickers and trinkets for sale all over the country. A former medical student, the Argentine had given up her studies in her Buenos Aires apartment after dreaming that Sai Baba summoned her to India. Later, as we snaked our way north, we visited her at Sai Baba's enormous Priyashante Nilayam ashram in a barren corner of Andhra Pradesh, one of India's poorest states. The ashram boasted a shiny planetarium, two hospitals that treated patients for free, a college, a music school, and a brand-new airport for wealthier devotees with private planes. Around the edges, luxury apartment buildings were replacing mud huts. Rather than requesting two of the ashram's 10,000 beds, we checked into a nearby hotel. Every afternoon, a loudspeaker piped in music praising the guru. When I bought a pen at a local shop to take notes, it had Sai Baba's smiling face on it. There was an ambient spiritual hysteria at Prashantini Lam. At dinner one evening, a devotee we'd become friendly with pointed out an Austrian woman tugging her listless seven-year-old son behind her. She was in the midst of a spiritual crisis because she'd had a dream in which Sai Baba instructed her to abandon the boy and live on the streets as a beggar, and she didn't know if she had the strength to do it. As far as I could tell, no one at the ashram was stepping forward to discourage her. I also heard rumors of sexual abuse and was shocked to meet old hands at the ashram who accepted these stories as true, though they interpreted the molestations as part of Sai Baba's divine mission. One man, an American ex-motivational speaker, thought they were part of Baba's plan to spread his message— Probably more people are going to know about you if there are allegations that you're a pedophile than if you say God is incarnated on earth, he told me. I ended up writing a story about all this for Salon. It didn't leave me any more eager to find a guru. Arriving in McLeod Ganj, weeks later, my husband and I saw a flyer seeking volunteers to teach English at a school for Tibetan refugees. After months of lassitude, We were thrilled and relieved at the chance to be useful, and threw ourselves into the work. Settling down for several months in the sweet, peaceful little town, blessedly cool after months on the roasting plains, I realized I needed to get in shape. Most travelers who wander around India on the cheap lose weight, but I have an iron stomach, as well as a weakness for naan and paneer tikka masala. There was a three-hour Ashtanga-based yoga class that met early every morning in a gymnasium near the center of town, and I signed up for it. It was excruciating. I didn't know it at the time, but Ashtanga was initially based on exercise routines developed for teenage boys. The jumpbacks we did between poses, like squat thrusts followed by half-push-ups, were channels for an animal energy I'd never possessed. The contortions required for binding poses were out of reach, the inversions terrifying, and I still couldn't do a split, but I kept going back, at first because I wanted to lose weight, then because my friends in town were also going, and finally because it left me feeling fantastic. A lot of the credit goes to my teacher, Vijay, a gumby-limbed South Indian who could toss his ankle behind his neck as casually as if he were flinging a scarf. Vijay had very few pretensions. Once, catching me smoking a cigarette, he plucked it out of my fingers and then started puffing on it himself. Vijay, what are you doing? You're a yogi, I cried. Michelle, he said to me with a gleam in his eye, I'm not a yogi, I'm a businessman.
I appreciated this sort of candor. Before I left India, Vijay said to me, Smoking won't interfere with your yoga, but yoga will interfere with your smoking. This turned out to be true. A year later, I quit. By then, my husband and I were living in Brooklyn. I was working as a journalist and writing about politics, which often left me nodded and angry. Yoga became a refuge. Sometimes I practiced four or five times a week. In the ritual and community of classes, I began to sense some of the consolation that others find in religion. Though still not a believer in anything supernatural, I felt the benefits of stepping outside the rush of ordinary life and trying to attune myself to a higher state of consciousness, however inchoate and fleeting. The discipline of paying attention to the habitual way your thoughts unfold, to the familiar grooves of your mind, seemed like cognitive therapy, but cheaper.